0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. The last time we talked about the parable of the laborers. If you didn't get that scripture or that sermon, definitely check it out online. Uh, it's all about grace. It's very uplifting and very encouraging. And today we're going to start the really the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. We're going to start off with the triumphal entry, and there's going to be some things that we notice about Jesus' character and his behavior that start to change, of course in a good way. Uh, We'll notice that he allows the crowds to start to worship him, which he hadn't done before, and we'll see why. And we're also going to see that he starts to really chastise and lay a heavy rebuke on the religious system at large because of their failure to shepherd the people. So we're going to start with verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and he's quoting, Uh, Matthew's quoting Zechariah 9, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, And again, this is another prophecy fulfilled. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This comes from Psalm 118. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is the portion of scripture known as the triumphal entry. This is, at this point, Jesus, the Messiah, is being presented to Jerusalem, which was supposedly, or supposed to be, the spiritual seat of the Jewish people. Now, if you remember, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he would do a healing. You know, somebody would be blind, he'd open his eyes, he'd raise someone from the dead, like nothing. You know, anyone who came to him, he'd cast out a demon. If somebody was lame, he made them whole again, and he would say, Now, don't tell anyone. It's kind of humorous because of course they were so excited they told everyone and that led to a, a, a problem where the multitudes actually came out at least one time I can recall in scripture and tried to take him and make him their king by force and he actually had to withdraw from the crowds, and he would say it's not my time so what's changed it is his time and we're going to look at that now I want to just kind of give you a little background on understanding what prophecy is Prophecy is really God's seal of authenticity. He says, this is my word and you'll know it's true because everything I say will come true. Now, we are bound linearly by time. In other words, what I'm going to say two minutes from now is the future right now. In two minutes, it's gonna become the present and in four minutes, it'll be the past. So what happens is we move in a linear fashion across time, right, you ever see those timelines when you're a kid in grammar school? Um, But God is not bound by time. He sees the end from the beginning. So a seal of authenticity of his word, one of the seals, is the fact that 50 years from now, 100, 2,000 years from now, he sees into the future, he speaks about events that will happen with incredible detail, and he says, watch, watch it unfold. And I'm not talking uh, vague like Gene Dixon prophecies or your horoscope. I'm talking about detail names, places, events, uh, whatever the colors it's at some point. So this is pretty amazing what he does with his prophecy. Now, we may be familiar with what's considered false prophecy. Okay, there was an event recently in in May that a man said, hey, the world is going to end May 21st, or the rapture is going to come. And of course, May 21st came and went and it didn't happen. Now in Deuteronomy 18, that's sort of a litmus test for you to see who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet. Unfortunately, in our age, in our day, we see a lot of false prophets. But basically, God's prophets can say a thousand, or excuse me, a prophet can say a thousand things that come to pass. If there's one in there that actually doesn't come to pass, God considers him a false prophet. I have not sent him, do not follow him. And in the Old Testament, testament they would be stoned to death certainly a way to weed out false prophets although we don't do that today and i'm not suggesting it okay but the bottom line is god is perfect he's omniscient he's hundred percent so everything has to come back with hundred percent flawlessness so whether it be harold camping or the jehovah witnesses who have done it multiple times the mormons the seventh day adventists people still follow them but what they need to do is go back to the word and not follow false prophets. So let's move forward. I'm going to give you today, this morning, and there's hundreds of them, three time-sensitive prophecies. Some prophecies give you geographic descriptions. Some give you, like I said, different parameters or characteristics to the event that happens. These prophecies will be time-sensitive, which means they can only happen, remember we talked about linear time, they can only happen in a sliver of human history, The time comes and goes, and no one outside of that sliver of history can say, I'm the Messiah. So let's start with wide, and we'll get to narrow. This this stuff's amazing. The first one is Haggai, and I'm going to use round numbers, roughly 500 BC, again, round numbers. um, Haggai 2, 7, and 9, and he generally speaks about, the prophet, about the temple being filled with glory, and the glory better than or greater than the former a glory of the former temple. Now we know that the first temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians, was glorious. It was Solomon's temple. There were cedars, there was marble, there was gold, it was gorgeous. And the pagans had come in and they destroyed the temple, they leveled it. Um, the second temple that was being built on the, around the time of Haggai, he was speaking about this glorious uh, presence in the temple. Now, the second temple, when we read in the scripture, was not as nice as the first temple. So we're not talking about the actual building, God's house. What we're talking about is what is inhabiting the temple. We know that in the first temple, the people were so wicked that God's Shekinah glory, his presence, actually departed. God said, I'm out of here. This is just too wicked for me. A spiritual system had become corrupt. So what is he referring to? Well, he uses a euphemism or an uh, idiom, uh, the desire of all nations. And that's, the, that's a picture of the Messiah. And remember, 500, 500 years prior to Christ actually coming to the earth. So what we see is a sliver of human history, 500 years. Roughly, that temple was, uh, was around before it got destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, well, 500, there's, there's wiggle room in there. But I'll tell you what, I couldn't claim to be the Messiah today because it's way outside of that time. I'm, I'm a few thousand years too late, or anyone who claims to be the Messiah. The second prophecy, now we're going to narrow it down some, is Genesis 49.10. Um, a few thousand years before Christ, I think close to 2,000 years. And what Genesis 49.10 says, that prophecy says that uh, what's going to happen is during the time of Messiah or Shiloh, right, there would, the sceptership would depart from Judah. What does that mean? Well, if you start looking up these words, if you look up the Hebrew, the sceptership was the Jews' ability to run day-to-day operations, to enforce Mosaic law, and that included capital punishment. Well, if we're uh, fans of history, which I love history, all the nations that took over Israel—the Jewish people, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans—they pretty much took them over, said, "Give us tribute money, but you can do the day-to-day p- stuff with your people and your religion. We don't, don't don't bother us. We really don't care." Well, something interesting happened about the time of AD six. What happened was the uh, the quasi-Jewish leader Herod Archelaus was such a uh, such a disaster that the Romans removed him and put in Capanius. He's a prefect. Okay, who's a famous prefect that we know? Pontius Pilate. So from Capanius to Pontius Pilate, five prefects later, all of a sudden, starting with Capanius, the right of the Jewish people to rule their own people, uh, adjudicate uh, legal issues, and then perform capital punishment was immediately removed. If you remember, the Jews went to Pilate, and they needed him to crucify Jesus because they didn't have the power to do it. So what we see is a sliver of time between 6 A.D. and the time that Christ presented himself in uh, roughly 32 A.D. I'm going to find that on here. Uh, Now we see that it's getting from 500 years to a few decades. Now, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament. God is going to narrow his prophecy down to the day that the Messiah presents himself. This stuff is fascinating. Again, Daniel, he's praying. He's uh, praying for the Jewish people, his fellow Jews. Uh, They're in captivity to Babylon. Then the Medo-Persians take over. And the angel Gabriel flies swiftly to Daniel to give him an answer from God. And we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to cover some things for the sake of time. And I'm actually going to cut this uh, chapter in two for the sake of time, for the sermons. There's so much in here, I don't want to rush through it. So if you look at Daniel chapter 9, we know that Gabriel speaks about Daniel, and this has to do with his people, the Jews, which is very important, especially when we get into eschatology and the tribulation. People get their their stories messed up about what's going to happen in the future based on them not understanding Daniel chapter 9. But he says this, the angel, 70 weeks. Now the word in Hebrew is Shabuah, which is, just means a seven. However, it's similar to our 10, which is a decade in English. So this is a period of seven years. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. Well, that hasn't happened yet. To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now... Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What we see here is, listen, sometimes we look at ancient civilizations and we kind of look down our nose at them. But if you're an a studier of history, you see that ancient civilizations kept meticulous records. We're not the only ones who do that. So if you go back to the Persian Empire, what happens you'll find in uh, March 14th of 445 B.C., under Artaxerxes Longimanus, he gave the command to go and rebuild Jerusalem. So now the, the clock starts ticking. Well, it says that until the Messiah, the prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, just their form of how they say it. We're talking about a period of 69 weeks or 483 years. So any good Jew who knew his scripture As time starts to go, they say, well, Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem. They're counting down the years until the Messiah comes. And this is going to play in big time when we cover this. From 314, 445 BC to April 6th, 32 AD was a period of exactly 483 years or 173,880 days uh, accounting for the Babylonian calendar and leap year. Someone did that calculation. So... Guess what? This was the day that Jesus walked in, or he, he rode into Jerusalem triumphantly as the Messiah. It's pretty impressive stuff. And this is going to come into play, too, when we talk about the fig tree a little later on. So basically, what you have is to the day that the Messiah, in human history, how can anyone claim to be the Messiah before that day or after? It's impossible. Because God gave the actual day that it would happen. Very, Very impressive. So what this tells us is that there's only one Messiah. There's only one Son of God, one Savior, perfection. That's why so many men with delusions of grandeur have tried to claim that they were the Messiah over the years. Because they're trying to copy that perfection, but they're, again, false prophets. They're false messiahs. Now, this explains what? When we read the scripture, we have some questions. When you understand that the Jews at the time, even though they had backslidden... If they knew their scripture, this explains, number one, why the crowds would try to force Jesus to be a king, because they knew any day now he's going to march into Jerusalem. So they were trying to grab him during that year, say, come on, you're our king. We also uh, see that men and women, the women of the Bible, the disciples, leaving fishing businesses, leaving a tax collecting uh, you know, booth that was very lucrative, they just drop everything Jesus says, follow me. They just drop it and they take off. When we read the Bible, it doesn't make sense until we understand this prophecy, right? Three, the donkey owner, you know, and some guys around it. The disciples go and they start untying the donkey. They're stealing it. Well, what are you guys doing? The Lord has need of it. Well, I take the donkey. You know what I'm saying? All this stuff makes sense now. And four, the people's response, Hosanna, save now, Lord. Spreading their clothes on the ground so that the donkey could trample over their garments. It all makes sense. Save now from Rome, though. See, that was the problem. By the end of the week, they're shouting, crucify him. They were disappointed. Jesus gave them what they need. He didn't didn't give them what they they wanted. They want the Roman yoke being thrown off of them. So what do we find out here? That the first time Jesus came to give us what we need, to save us from our sins, to save us from ourselves. Now, for those of you who are of the younger generation, raise your hand, how many of you have heard or listened to the music of the group called Corn? With a K, there are a few of you. Cool. Um, This is interesting because the the, I think it was the lead guitarist Brian Head Welch became a Christian. When I you gotta you gotta Google some of these interviews, he was talking about how he was making millions of dollars. His records were going platinum. He had so many millions of dollars, he couldn't spend all the money. Houses, cars, you know, uh, parties, whatever this guy wanted, whatever this band wanted. Multi-million dollar empire. And he was speaking about how he was rising to fame. And the records were going from gold to platinum. And then he speaks about what was going on in his personal life. He was losing everything. He was losing his wife. His daughter was being born. Both of them were strung out on drugs. They couldn't take care of the little girl. And he said, the higher I got, the more I fell. You see this inverse relationship. He said, all my boyhood dreams of playing the guitar, every one of those dreams were fulfilled and realized. But he was plummeting. He said, I just wanted to die. He wanted to go to sleep and never wake up. He was popping pills to stay awake in the morning, and then he was popping pills to go to bed at night. That's how bad his life was. He became a Christian And he said, I finally had a peace that washed over me. He goes, I asked God, I want to quit. He was doing methamphetamine every day for two years. He said, God, you got to take this from me. It's killing me. I can't do it myself. And he had an experience with the Lord and he knew it had to be supernatural. This is amazing. So when we look at those in Hollywood or the the band players, you know, you see all the pictures and they're really cool and they got money and the lifestyles are rich and famous, the rappers and the young folks look at this like it's something to behold. When you really find out about their personal life, they're the most unhappy people, most depressed people on the planet. How many of them overdose? How many of them finally just kill themselves, right? Well, Brian wrote a book called "Save Me from Myself." He finally got it. He needed to be saved from his sins. He needed to be saved from himself. He needed the Savior, and he walked away from a multi-million-dollar empire. He left the band. He didn't feel he could stay in there in that lifestyle. Now, there's another uh, band member from the same group, Fieldy. I, I was looking at an interview with him. Apparently, he was a nasty guy. Even the interviewer said, "I interviewed you 10 years, and you were really rude." He goes, yeah, I burned a lot of bridges in my life, but now I'm starting to repair those relationships. That's the power of Jesus Christ. Don't get so mesmerized by the posters and what's on, on the internet and all the lies, all the airbrushing to make you, because Satan will do this. He'll bring you as high as you want to go. He'll do it. He'll, he'll shoot you past the clouds, but he'll destroy you at the same time. We need to be saved from our sins and we need to be saved from ourselves. By the way, um, Brian is part of uh, the whosoevers now, and they're coming this way, but I'm going to talk to you later about that, so we actually may get to meet him and talk to him, but I'll I'll save that for somewhere down the line. Remember, God gives us what's good for us, not necessarily what feels good. God gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Verse 5, Zechariah 9 speaks about this situation where jesus now is riding this donkey now we also know that in mark's gospel the donkey was never ridden before the donkey was pristine for the messiah to come and ride upon but here's the problem warriors rode horses again the people's attitude save us from rome We want a a charger. We want a a, a beautiful, massive stallion that you're going to ride and, and just start slaying these guys. That's coming. Revelation 19 speaks about a Jesus who comes when the heavens open up and I saw a white horse and him that sat on the horse was faithful and true. He had multiple crowns on his head. His eyes were a flame of fire. His robe was dipped in blood. And he has a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth that he uses to strike the nations with. It's no contest. The world against him, I created this earth. His attitude is, I'm going to fix it. That's coming. But that's the second coming of, of the Christ. They had their prophecies. They wanted the one where the warrior would come first. But in essence, God's plan was we need to be saved from the inside out. And then eventually he'll fix all the external problems at a later date. Verse 9, we read this portion of scripture that says um, the people were crying, screaming, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now before, listen, every time I read a different scripture to you, we're going into the past. As you flip these pages, we, we go into the future, a future from our future. We're going into the past, 100 years. 5 We're going into the distant past, a few thousand years. When somebody comes and says to you, this book was written by men, this book, this, that's a misnomer. This isn't a book. After the printing press, yeah, they took the scrolls and they, they, they made some uh, copies and they put it on onion skin and they put it in this pretty binder and this, you know, this leather spine and they made a book out of it. This isn't a book. When you look at the uh, original scrolls, there's 40 auth- authors. Sixty-six scrolls and books, three different languages, different people, different cultures, different geographies. These people didn't even know each other. They would never have met some of their families or their bloodlines. Man wrote this? How do you get people from different time periods to be in collusion? They don't even know each other. You know what I'm saying? Right? Arguably over, arguably over a period of 2,500 years. So listen, I, I did ask the teens to stay in today because this is going to be your foundation. Okay, this book, it's not really a book. This is God's message system of love to us. He loves us and he calls us through his word and he says, prove me, test me to see if I'm true or not. This book, no other book can do what this book can do. They've tried, they've failed, they've made false prophecies. Believe me, I got files at home in my steel cabinet of all the cults out there. There's a truth right here. So, we're going to go into Psalm 118. I'm just going to read a few verses for the sake of time. Um, we're, going about, we're going back about 3,000 years at this point. I'm just going to read some scripture and then just kind of point out, for the sake of time, what we're going to cover here. But he says, this psalmist, I will praise you. You have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, a lot of people quote that, but this day was a special day that it was being referred to, and it was the day that the Messiah would present himself to the people. All of history, human history, cries out for that day that the Lord has made. And it's interesting because the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief. Cornerstone. I don't know about you, but I mean, I did some mason work. I've laid block before and it's it's it can be very tedious in the beginning because Let's say that this is the ground and this is the foundation. You got to start with a corner For those of you who have done construction and laid block and what you have to do is you have to start at the bottom of the corner Because if it isn't straight it isn't square it isn't plumb, It isn't everything that it needs to be the whole building the whole foundation is a mess And you got it like the Tower of Pisa, you know, you got to fix it later on or knock it down and and start all over again. But I'm used to dealing with block. In those days, they dealt with stones. They would just haul all these stones to to the place of the building and they would put the stones together. If you've ever been in a really old house with a dirt floor and a stone foundation, they're all different colors, shapes, sizes, and there's some mortar in between each stones. But the chief stone was the cornerstone, was the capstone, which was this stone right here. Because everything was built over it. And, and when you get that stone perfect and all the other little stones are on it, now you start to have your corner and it's going out in two directions. Now you got a foundation. Now you got something you can work with. Jesus is likened to that chief stone that the builders looked at and said, what can we do with this thing? Put it aside. And they're trying to build the building and they rejected the stone. So the foundation was off. It, was, it wasn't, it wouldn't hold anything. It says, Save now, verse 25. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is good, and he has given us light. Again, in a few days, as we go through the scripture, we're going to see a crowd, a majority go from, who is this? Oh, this is the Messiah, he's great. You know, my little boy was sick and he healed him and you know, I couldn't see and now I could see, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna. By the few days later, they're like, crucify him. Let his, let his blood be on us and our children. How does that happen? Well, number one, people are fickle. People are fickle. So I would say this, that if you, whatever your peer group, now some think that peer pressure is just for teens, i got to tell you, it's adults too. You you never get out of feeling pressured from your peers or things that you think you should do. But maybe it's not the right thing to do. But I'll say this, that um, I don't care where you are. Listen, you could have friends in high school and college, starting your first job. And over the years, your friends will change. Let me ask you a question. Is it really worth compromising what you believe or walking away from your Savior who saved you to impress your peers? Now, I know, Pastor Joe, you're not with me in my group. I get that. (laughs) I can't be with all of you. And I probably, they wouldn't be your friends anymore if I might have talked to them. I don't know. But the bottom line is, um, you know, people are fickle. What stands the test of eternity is God's word and his love for us. That's what we need to have a loyalty. That's what we need to have an allegiance to. It also wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And you even hear some today saying, I don't need anyone to die for my sins. Well, I hope that attitude changes, and I pray for you if that's your attitude. Because if you take that all the way up to the judgment, it's not going to be good. Let's just say that. So the first thing that the Lord does uh, on this, we believe it's a Sunday, is fulfill a Bible prophecy regarding the messianic understanding so the people would know for sure that he is who he said he was. Now, verse 12, Matthew continues. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have meted a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So now that Jesus establishes his messiahship, what he has to do is clean out the filth and the mockery of what the spiritual, the religious system made of, of their supposed representations of God. Now, I would probably venture to, to guess that some of you might be here today, um, maybe not literally kicking and screaming, but you know, maybe coaxed by your parents or coaxed by a friend or um, I don't know, maybe they told you that if you came here, we would give out free toasters or something. I don't know what the case may be. But you might be turned off by religion. Right? I will tell you what, as a young person, I was turned off by religion. And I'll tell you what, Jesus was also turned off by religion. So you're in good company. What is he saying here? And first I'll quote the scripture, um, the um, prophecy, and then I'll go into what was happening. Isaiah 56 says that, my house will be a house of prayer, God's house. Um, Jeremiah 7 speaks about those who made it a den of thieves. Now, what does this mean? Money changers, doves flying around, Jesus turning tables over. We saw this in John chapter 2. This was what the religious system had become. So here's the money changers. Let's say you go to Europe, and you know, they have a euro now, and let's say they don't accept American money anymore. You have to go to a house of exchange, and you go there and you give them, you know, a thousand U.S. dollars and they give you so many euros. There's an exchange rate for it. Um, sometimes they, you know, they give, take a little bit more, you know. But this was happening in God's house. You would come with your Roman coin and the religious leaders said, well, no, no, this has to be a shekel, you know, or this has to be uh, a monetary amount. We can't have that dirty Roman money in the temple. So what they would do is you would come in and they would exchange your money except they would charge you like two or three times the rate. And the doves, you know what's sad? The doves were for the poor people. If you couldn't afford like a a bigger sacrifice, like a lamb or a a bull or something like that, you would bring your birds in there and the priests or those doing the exchange rate would look at your animal and go, oh, I lifted up the feather and there's a, a little hair missing. We can't use your doves. Here's our doves. And of course, the doves would be far more expensive than the dove that you brought in. So what was happening was, the people got a taste of religion that was a bitter taste in their mouth. They did it grudgingly. They did it reluctantly. And Jesus had enough of it. He did it in John chapter 2 in the beginning of his ministry, and he does it now. Throwing, you know, he didn't sin. What he did was righteous, because he was, had a zeal for the Father's house. Turning over tables, probably set, setting the doves free, and, change, and chasing these guys out of there. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 2, it said he sat there and made a whip of cords. You know, I could just picture him just sitting there patiently, you know, tying it up, seeing if it'll crack. And then he gets up and he starts driving everybody out of there. That's cool, right? It's pretty neat stuff. When he was tweaked, boy, and, and he had every reason to be tweaked. He had the Lord on his side and he didn't sin. So let's make sure we understand that. But the spiritual leaders were praying on the people. Now, I don't mean P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. I mean P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. Like a bird of prey finds a mouse in a field and seizes on it. That's what the, re- the spiritual leaders were doing to the people. And Jesus had enough of it. But you know what? It happens today too. And that's why some of you are turned off by religion. Now let's see what a church or a house of God is supposed to look at or look like. What he does is he, he chases these guys out. And now it becomes a house of prayer, healing the sick. We know the, all the outcasts always came to Jesus. So he cleaned the place out of all the corruption and then he had what the uh, temple really was designed for, was to bring in all the outcasts and the hurting of society. And we see that today, don't we? What should a church look like? It should be a reflection of God's, what God's word says. Is there anybody that, that could want to come into these doors that we should say, no, we don't want your kind? Does it matter what they look like or what they're doing at home? No, we let them come in and let God's word change them. I I kind of follow some of the countercultural trends. You ever hear of transdermal implants? It's actually, this is so weird. What these people do now is as if, you know, piercings weren't enough. And I'm okay with piercings. It's pretty neat. But what they do is they actually put holes in their skull, and they put like a receptacle in there, and the skin forms over it, and they, they make a hole, and they screw things into their skull. And I've seen pictures of this, horns or spikes. These people really have like spikes coming out of their head. Now, I would let them in here too, but they'd have to sit in the back because people couldn't see over those spikes. It might be a distraction. So, you know, there's a place for everything. But whatever. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they were happy. Oh no, it doesn't say that. And the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were angry and said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. How blind, how angry, how completely self-deceived you have to be to see Jesus doing miracles and yet angry. But we don't see that today. Some see the works of God and the miracles of God, but they're so self deceived, they're so focused on their agenda that they walk right past it or they get angry about it. Sometimes your presence, if you're leading a really good Christian life, just your presence will irritate others. And it happened here. Sadly enough, these guys were, the, again, the spiritual leaders. But out of the mouth of babes, again, this goes back to Psalm 8. We've got a whole lot of Old Testament scriptures in here. Um, I'll tell you what. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained praise. And there's different uh, translations that say that in different ways. Uh, but you know what? How awesome it is it to see new believers who just have these questions? And I love it. I mean, our church has new believers. And they just ask these basic questions. And it's so awesome. You see their love for the Lord, their zeal to learn more. How exciting. The simple folk praise Jesus. They didn't get into theological discussions with the Pharisees and the scribes. They saw what he was doing. And in their tender spirits, they knew that he was the one. I mean, they saw his fruit. So Hosea 11, which I love, uh, the Old Testament prophet, God says that he's gentle when he calls us. And God also says that I drew them with gentle bands or cords of love. See, God is a gentleman. And I'll tell you the truth that, you know, I think I'm a guy's guy but when I found out and I started reading about the love of God, it changed me and, and it touched my heart and it, it kind of came through a lot of those barriers and I said, gee, the God of the universe, the creator loves me as an individual. He's validated me. He thinks I'm important. See, that's a proper self-esteem, not what you see in magazines, to know that your father in heaven loves you so much that he can hear the prayers of billions of people but at the same time he can love you as an individual. So I'll tell you what, as soon as I found out about God's love for me, I was smitten. You know, where do I sign up? What do I have to do? And that's the truth, the truth of God's love. Luke 1940 is important because, um, and I love to go through the parallel scriptures, the parallel gospels. In Luke, he adds something that he felt was very important that Jesus said. And Jesus says this in 1940, if they should keep silent, immediately the stones would cry out. And that's the song that Dave played today. The rocks would cry out if we did not praise. And I tell you, I believe that literally. You see, for those of us who, have, who get it now, and everyone can get it, you know, it's really a matter of laying down your will. You get it. You know that God loves you. You start that journey with him. You accept him as your Lord and Savior. You start to develop a relationship with the creator of the universe. You can't keep us quiet. We can't shut up. You know, you start talking to us about God and we want to tell you what he's done in our life. We want to tell you what the Bible says. We want you to be a part of it. But, and if all of those guys, all those people were quiet, I believe that the rocks would have screamed. Could you imagine that? But I believe that this was literal. And I would just say this, that, um, you know, I look at it as, you ever see that like one way glass where if you're on the the, the right side, you could see what's in your room and, and everybody else's room. But if you're on the other side, you can see what's in your room, but it's tinted. So I liken it to, you know, those of us who get it and those of us who want you to get it is where you're, if you're not, if you don't know the Lord, you're on the side where you just see what's going on in your own little world. You know, it's a self-centered world. Look in the mirror, you look around you, everything in your life has to do with how it affects you. And you kind of look at that glass and you put your fingers up against it and you put your nose up and... All you can see is shadows in the other world. You don't really see what's going on. But those of us are on the other side. We do see what goes on in the natural world. We're not oblivious to things in this physical world that we have to live in. But we also see those that are going on in the spiritual world. We have the big picture. So when we go to a funeral, we're not confused. We understand perfectly what's going on at that funeral. Perfectly what's happening. And we're just itching to tell somebody about the love of God and the encouragement. And for those of us who who are on that side, you know, we, we just want to grab you and say, no, you gotta come over here. And you know, that's not the way to win somebody, wrestling them or, or forcing them. You're free moral agents. It's your choice. But the rocks would cry out because for those of us who have been on that search looking for meaning, and I've been there, intellectual pursuits, fleshly pursuits, monetary pursuits, all these pursuits, and you finally find the Lord on your travels, you realize that all those other things that you tried to fill the void in your life, he just immediately filled. I I drank a lot, and I will tell you, it was just amazing, I didn't even think about it. When I became a born-again Christian, it just stopped. Because what that booze was filling, he filled now. And I, I look back one day and say, I don't drink. He, he just did it. But that's, that's the beauty of our Lord. And, and there's some even here that have beat drugs and different things. And it, it's just amazing. And, and, you know, the guy from corn, you know, beat all those methamphetamine, pill popping. You know, the Lord just filled that. So it, it's just exciting. Anyway, but the Lord doesn't need us. He can use the rocks, he can use, we know in in the time of the tribulation, the angels will fly across the heavens and preach the everlasting gospel. We know that the the Jews who are mostly left on the earth, that's that last seven weeks, right? That's 69 weeks of Daniel has been fulfilled. And then there's been a gap starting with the church age. There's one more week, one more seven-year period, which is where the Jews will take prominence again, where Israel will take prominence again. And he'll use evangelistic Jews to preach the gospel. God can use whoever he wants to use. But we, would, we should want to be used. If we really get what it means to be saved, we should want to be used. The last few verses, and this is where I'm going to end it. Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit go, grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Now when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, this is an interesting portion of scripture because do you remember in any of the gospels Jesus ever using his power to destroy anything? No. So that change of behavior should tip us off to something big here. If the cleansing of a temple was a sign of the corruption of the religious system, then the cursing of the fig tree was the sign of the corruption in the nation of Israel at that time. Israel bore fruit at some times and sometimes it didn't bear fruit. Jesus speaks of the power of faith, but don't miss the other dimension, which he's going to actually speak about more as we continue, because Jesus knew the fate of Jerusalem for not knowing their time of the visitation of the Messiah. They should have known. Let me read to you something that this is incredible. We're going to go into the future again, in their future, Luke 19, starting with verse 42. Now, remember, the event that Jesus speaks about is a 70 AD event. You can find it in your historical books. However, Jesus is speaking, and we know this from history and and very simply, even from our dating 2011, we know that Jesus passed uh, in, in, you know, the, um, the third century AD. So he's speaking about something that hasn't happened yet, 40 years into the future. Look at this detail and then go into your history books when you leave here. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, some are so blown away by this who know history that they said it had to be written after the event, but it wasn't. What he's speaking about is, in 70 AD, uh, Titus Vespasian was the Roman general, and he had four legions of Roman soldiers that surrounded Jerusalem, literally, like I said, right out of the history books. And there actually was a time where, later on we're going to read, where Jesus says, flee to the mountains of Judea. There was was a lull in the fighting, and some of the Jews and some of the people in Jerusalem actually fled, and they they were safe. But those that didn't heed Jesus' prophecies, it was too late when the Romans started attacking, and they had an ethnic hatred for the Jews. So what happened was the whole desire was to save the temple and maybe convert it into a temple of Zeus or something like that. But what happens is Vespasian couldn't control his men. Some of them threw flaming uh, firebrands into the adjoining apartments and such and started a fire. And the fire lit up on the—they had huge uh, fabric curtains— That went up, the cedars went up. Now, all of a sudden, the temple becomes a tinderbox. And all the gold in the temple, remember, everything's plated with gold, starts to ooze, starts to melt. And it starts to seep into the stones. He said not one stone will be left upon another. Why? Because the soldiers were, were bloodthirsty. And they were, they were savages in what they had done to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they also uh, took every stone and took it off. You know, They knocked that whole thing down. Because they were trying to find the gold that was oozing in underneath the stones from the heat. Jesus speaks about this with incredible accuracy. Open up your history books and you will find that exactly what Jesus said is exactly what happened. I love history. And i tell you what, the more I read secular history, the more it confirms the Bible. So you tell me that that's just the book. And let me tell you something. There is a trend in colleges, and secular colleges, for these professors to find a Christian student, you read it all the time, and to denigrate their faith and to pick on them and humiliate them, okay? This is, this is documented stuff. I'll tell you this that you can have your professor, you can give him my cell phone number, I'd love to meet with him, and he better brush up on his history before we talk about the Bible. So, there you have it. (laughs) They're bullies. So, Mark's gospel said, now in in conjunction with this, he says it wasn't the season for figs. Okay, now it really makes Jesus look mean. What is he's withering this fig tree? And and Mark says that there shouldn't even had been any figs on it. Well, I have with me today, and I was told that every Italian should have a fig tree, so I have a fig tree. (laughs) This is withering because they're really beautiful leaves, um, uh, because I'd clipped it, and I asked it if it was okay because I was doing an illustration, and it forgave me. But basically, this is a, a cutting from a fig tree. And what happens is, and you can take a look at this after service, My fig tree over the winter, uh, last two years, gave me beautiful figs, but this, I didn't cover it, and the high snow really kind of killed it. And then it came back. In two months, the thing is actually this high. They grow fast, and they're beautiful trees. But here's the solution to the dilemma. Oh, the Bible must be inconsistent again. There's two types of figs. There's late figs, which is the real fruit that everybody likes, and that's in uh, the fall, and they're beautiful figs. However, there's also early figs. So if this really happened in April 6, 32 AD, what Jesus would have seen was a bunch of leaves, and you can see here the early figs, the sprouts coming up, right? Now, some people like the early figs, but they're not as sweet and, and, you know, bountiful as the late figs. When Jesus saw the fig tree, it didn't have early figs. That's what I believe. So he, he let it wither. Now, understand this, that this was an object lesson. This was an object lesson, because we know that in the scripture, the nation of Israel has been likened to a fig tree in Jeremiah 8, uh, Hosea 9, and and other scriptures. So this was an object lesson to the nation of Israel, and he he goes into that later on. Romans 9.6, the Apostle Paul says, not all Israel who are of Israel. There were many who walked through the wilderness. There were many who saw the miracles, but they weren't saved, because their hearts weren't right before the Lord. And they didn't bear, at certain times, they didn't bear spiritual fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is the behavior and the actions from the Lord changing us inside. That's spiritual fruit. So when we become born again and we start to have a relationship with the Lord, things are supposed to change. Sometimes slowly, sometimes for others a little quicker. Sometimes God gets rid of really bad things right in the beginning and other things we struggle with for a few years. And we're never perfected on this side of eternity. But as a nation, they didn't bear fruit. They were supposed to show monotheistic God to the polytheistic pagans that surrounded them, and they failed a lot. As a matter of fact, they rejected their living God for the idols of the other nations. So this was pretty pretty serious stuff. Now, before we get caught up in pointing the finger at Israel... What about the church? Now, I don't know about you, but I follow trends, especially in the Western church, and it's not pretty. And the Bible says that the church is going to go apostate. So before we start pointing fingers at, the, at Israel, we need to clean our own house because there's a few object lessons in here. And the question is, our goals? what are our goals as a church? Are they Christ-centered? Are they Bible-centered? Do we, wanna, do we want us to be matured through the word of God? And then go out and and beget others and bring them in and, and teach them about the faith, evangelism, right? What about the average believer? Sometimes the average believer doesn't bear fruit. And a believer that doesn't bear spiritual fruit is an oxymoron. Because if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit and you really know what the Lord has done in your life, you can't help but want others to have this. And even if it's, you're a quiet person, maybe even serving in some way or going to an outreach and, and helping to set up the tables like at the Trenton Homeless or something like that. Uh, but do we bear fruit as believers? For some of us, we should repent and ask the Lord to help us to bear fruit. It's important. So the third point that we see that Jesus does is we see an application to the nation in general with the fig tree, an application really to the church, and an application to the average believer because there were cultural Jews at the time that saw the miracles and weren't saved. There's also cultural Christians today that see miracles and aren't saved. So that's something to keep in mind. So as we wrap up, we look at this. Jerusalem experience. number one, the triumphal entry. They loved their Messiah at first. By the end of the week, he didn't do what they wanted and they were saying crucify him. What we see is object lessons in the religious system and a nation that didn't produce spiritual fruit as we get closer to the issues of the heart we look at problems in the western church there's a lot of hype out there a lot of neat websites a lot of neat pictures but there's there's nothing inside of it plenty of individuals part of the christian culture that aren't producing fruit that aren't saying anything that aren't they're not producing fruit and you know what maybe it's time for the rocks to cry out again let us take this opportunity to examine our hearts and see where we stand are we on fire for the lord as we see, you know, Iran now says that, well, we have missiles that will hit United States bases in, in Iran and Afghanistan, and we can hit Israel too, but we're not going to do it. Do we really believe that? See the turmoil in the, Do we see the turmoil in Pakistan and some nuclear nations and not think that we're really headed towards problems as a human race? And, and should we be excited to see that in Iran and in Syria, and in some of these oppressed, even in Saudi Arabia, there are pockets of believers, and the church is growing, and they have to do a lot of their work underground. So are we on fire for the Lord? Do we want to cry out to the world about what it means to be saved? Or do we need to do some soul-searching? Let's pray.